When I was seven years old, I had so much fun attending a summer day camp in suburban Philadelphia. My mom worked near the camp, so she dropped me off on her way to work, then picked me up in the afternoon. The memories become more vague as the years go by, but I remember there was a swimming pool and a lot of fun and laughter all day. I begged my mom to send me back for the entire summer, or for at least another two weeks, but I don't think that was in the family budget. On one of the last days of camp, a kid asked me if I ever felt funny being there. Why, I asked. Because you're the only black kid here, he said. I looked around at the other 15 or 20 kids. I honestly hadn't noticed it before. But he was right. I was the only black kid in the camp. But for those two weeks, being the only black kid didn't matter. The counselors never made me feel like an outsider. None of the other kids at the camp ever made me feel uncomfortable. I think about the innocence I had looking at the world as a child, as opposed to how I view the world now. That childlike innocence can never be recaptured. But I hold on to that summer camp memory, knowing that our differences don't have to pull us apart. And we can make someone who looks different feel good, if we make them feel included. Welcome to Black in the NFL. I'm your host, Clifton Brown. Today's episode is Power to the Players. My guests are American University law professor and author Ann Jeremy DeRue, former Ravens cornerback, NFLPA president, and current ESPN commentator Dominique Foxworth, former NFL running back and current president of the Washington football team, Jason Wright, and Richard Lapchick, one of the foremost social activists of the last 50 years and a professor at the University of Central Florida. There's long been a power struggle for all NFL players, and most definitely black players, to get where they are today. I've said many times before, but it bears repeating. The NFL is comprised of 70% black players. In this episode, we will discuss black players breaking the color barrier, to their battle to form an NFL players union, to their fight to achieve free agency, better salaries, and safer working conditions. Then we'll move the conversation forward to today, when more NFL athletes are using their platform to fight for social justice. We'll talk about the country's racial awakening since the murder of George Floyd, and what this awakening means for the NFL moving forward. Players seem to be feeling more empowered, but how should they best use their platform to create positive change, not only in the NFL, but in society. The journey for black players in the NFL started in 1920, when Fritz Pollard and Bobby Marshall became the league's first two black players. But that breakthrough didn't last. There were no black players in the league again from 1934 to 1946. Although there was no formal rule barring black players from the NFL during that time, it was widely known that Washington Redskins owner George Preston Marshall was the ringleader of a, quote, gentleman's agreement among the owners not to sign black players. Kenny Washington integrated the NFL again for good in 1946 when he signed with the Los Angeles Rams. Pollard, Marshall, and Washington were trailblazers breaking the color barrier. But when it came to players' rights, Another important black trailblazer was the late, great 
former Baltimore Colts tight end John Mackey. He fought to establish the National Football League Players Association, the NFLPA, and he became the union's first president in 1970. Here are some clips from a video on the NFLPA's website that details its history. The voices, in order of appearance, are from Mackey, NFLPA Executive Director DeMarie Smith, and former offensive lineman Max Starks. The National Football League is nothing without the players. That's the only thing you got going for you, is that you're a player, and that if you don't go out there and play on Sunday, the game will not go on. 26, 35, 100 owners cannot entertain 60,000 fans and the millions of people on a Sunday afternoon. It's the players. You have a union that basically started because players were tired of coming to work where the team hadn't uh, washed their clothes, uh, didn't provide them with uh, what they believed were the basic necessities. And going to the National Football League, a lot of those players in the 50s came into a professional league that was worse off than their college teams. For our players who stand up even to today, if you stand up and fight the National Football League, their most diabolical and easy way of getting back at you is to punish the player. You take John Mackey, for example, five-time All-Pro. In 1970, he becomes the first president of this union. In 1971, he loses his job. The pre-free agent era, you stayed with one team and that was it. And you were dictated, hey, this is your wage, this is what you're doing. If a guy asked for his release, he was asking for a release from the NFL. It wasn't from their team. Let's welcome my first guest, and Jeremy DeRue, an author of the book, Advancing the Ball, Race, Reformation, and the Quest for Equal Coaching and Opportunity in the NFL. DeRue says today's players owe a great debt to Mackey for setting the groundwork for the league salary structure that is in place today. Jeremy, I wanted to ask you, as far as the history of the NFL and players' rights, how important do you think it was for someone like John Mackey, who became the first NFLPA president to successfully establish a union for NFL players. Oh, well, I was critical. I mean, I, when you think about the history of the National Football League and important figures, if you're not counting John Mackey among them, then you have to go back to school because you know, John Mackey was fundamental to making the NFL what it is today. And his work with respect to the union basically modernized the relationship between players and clubs such that the players had a, a legitimate and reasonable stake in the ultimate operation. Without what Mackey did and some of the others who, who, who pushed the league toward free agency and giving the players opportunity to, to benefit from their market value, um, I'm not sure where the league would be. Right. As far as free agency, I mean, we all get excited every March uh, when we see players going back and forth, uh, you know, joining new teams, signing new deals. I think a lot of, of young fans don't realize that there was a time where this wasn't even taking place. Uh, how important was it for players to acquire NFL players, the true meaning or the true event of NFL free agency becoming a reality, what did that mean for players as far as salaries and as far as their their potential to maximize their careers? 
You know, again, it was fundamental. I mean, you know, we'll t- talk about salaries first. You know, anybody who understands, you know, market and economics understands that if you are restricted to one, only one option, then the money is going to be reflective. If you have many options, then you get to drive your market price. And so before free agency came into play, prices were very, very, very depreciated. In fact, many players, you know, in the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, had other jobs in the offseason. Those who know the NFL today probably don't, you can't imagine a world in which you, were, you have players who are getting paid so little that they have to have a job in the offseason now with the minimum uh, salaries of 600000 or so. But then that wasn't the case. It's free agency that opened up that opportunity. I should also point out that it also opened up the possibility for mobility. Like the rest of us in our professions, your profession, Cliff, mine, if I want to work in Miami or move to L.A., I can do that. You can do the same thing. But players were restricted to the club that drafted them until that club chose to trade them or release them. Otherwise, that's where they had to be. And Mackey and those folks ushered in a new era, giving players a whole new set of rights. Now, NFL's in its 101st season and began with some black players. But from 1934 to 45, black players were forbidden for participating in the NFL. How much is that a reminder that even when progress is made regarding race, there's no guarantee that progress will continue if we aren't diligent? That is, that's exhibit A. And that's the exhibit A reminder. You know, as you point out, you had folks like uh, Fritz Pollard and others who were NFL players in the league. There weren't a lot of them, but they were there. And then by way of a quote unquote gentleman's agreement among club owners, they were all expurgated in 34, as you point out, took a decade plus for them to come back into the game. And when they did come back into the game, Cliff, um, you had them coming back only initially at the speed positions. You didn't have them coming back at the quote unquote thinking position, quarterback, center, middle linebacker. It took Two decades after they came, after blacks were let back into the league in 1946, until you had a, a, a starting African American quarterback. Another two decades before you had a black uh, head coach. So it offers a perfect reminder that no matter how far you move forward, there can always be pullback. And quite frankly, I think we're seeing that in broader society right now. Now we saw some NFL players this offseason make their own video to speak out against social injustice. How much do you think that's a reflection that NFL players are becoming more socially conscious? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely reflects that. Uh, but of course, you know, I think that you know, it, it may be trite. It may, people, people may think we talk about it too much. But the stand that Colin Kaepernick took was an explosion in the National Football League. Not everybody was ready to stand up with him at that point. But it opened up a door and people began to be more and more willing to come out and express themselves strongly with respect to uh, their views on the state of society. And, and the video that you mentioned, I think it's notable that you had uh, Mahomes in there, Sean Watson. I mean, the faces of the league were willing to stand up and say, hey, listen, racism exists. We have to battle it together. In a league where careers are short and injuries are many, what concerns do you feel NFL players should have moving forward regarding their rights? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for NFL players, if you ask them, would be to try to create a more robust regime of guaranteed contracts. You know, some of the most marquee guys 
uh, can get guaranteed contracts, but that's not that's not the norm. You know, I think that the NFL's average career length is about 3.25 years. So we're talking about somebody who is done with their career by the age of 25, which is extraordinary for us. I'm not sure how old you are, Cliff, but I, you're gray <laughs> I'm, not 20. <laughs> I'm not 25. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not either. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty early for your, for your career to end. So you should be able to maximize what you do, what you get during that period of time. And in that football is such a physically rigorous game, uh, I think guarantees should be appropriate in that sport as they are in sports uh, that aren't nearly as rigorous. As players become more socially conscious, what suggestions would you give them as far as the best ways to use the platform that they have? You know, it's funny that you ask that. I mean, right now, I'm not sure I have any suggestions to give. I think they're doing it. We have reached a point, Cliff, where the athlete activist is a real thing. You know, the athlete activist existed in the 60s with Bill Russell and Jim Brown and John Wooten and those folks. And then for a few decades, we didn't see a whole lot of it. But over the last 10 years or so, we've seen uh, a renewal of that ethos. And in my view, that's an exciting thing. Verizon just turned on 5G across the country. The 5G America's been waiting for. Learn more at verizon.com slash 5G. My next guest is ESPN's Dominique Foxworth, who was president of the NFLPA from 2012 to 2014. Foxworth brings an insider's perspective on what it's like when players go head-to-head at the bargaining table with owners. He grew up in Maryland, a former star player at Western Tech High and the University of Maryland. He also spent his final three seasons with the Ravens from 2009 to 2011, but his career was cut short by a knee injury that forced him to retire at age 28. Foxworth enrolled at Harvard Business School, and he pursued a career in business after graduating, but he quickly tired of the long hours away from his family. When he was presented with the opportunity to join ESPN to give candid insights into the NFL, he couldn't pass it up. Foxworth believes players sometimes must take controversial stances to achieve what's best for themselves and other players moving forward. Le'Veon Bell held out for an entire season when he was with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and Deshaun Watson is reportedly upset with the Houston Texans for not soliciting his opinion when the team was searching for its next general manager. Foxworth definitely understands where those players are coming from. Dominique, let me ask you this. Uh, how much power do you think players in the NFL have now compared to when you were playing? It depends. I think some individual players are beginning to kind of test the limits and realizing that they are more powerful than uh, they had known in the past. Like we see very recently Deshaun Watson uh, maybe hitting around about forcing a trade, uh, kind of basketball style flexing of his power. But I think true player power comes from like the unity of all the players to be able to stick together through a strike or work stoppage or anything like that. And we've seen, 
unfortunately, the strikes that we've waged from a labor side of it haven't ended with the results that we necessarily wanted to have happen in those cases. But I think a demonstration of that power is always, I think, imposing and it, it puts in the minds of the people you're negotiating against what is what you're capable of. So that's what it comes down to. I think it's in, in any case, it's not just with players, but anywhere in life. And it's it's probably more true now than or more obvious now than ever is uh, words are words on a piece of paper and and uh, where, where the true power and influence comes from is from collective action. So we see that for the good and for the negative in our own society, which is larger than sports and sports is, as we all know, is a microcosm many times of what we see in society. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned Deshaun and him reportedly being unhappy. He wasn't consulted about them hiring a new general manager. Do you think we may see more of that in NFL moving forward, or do you feel this is just kind of maybe a, a unique situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that we will. There's unique things about the culture of football, and it's it kind of uh, fosters a militaristic mindset in some ways that is very command and control, and people are committed to the hierarchies and are not commonly like push back against them. So to see a quarterback do this, because most of the time quarterbacks, they kind of fall in line and they do what they're supposed to. They're seen as an extension of management in many cases. And Deshaun certainly isn't doing that. So I think the result of this will determine, because that's what happens with all this stuff. We saw LeBron kind of being the first one on the basketball side to really exhibit his power with that decision that, that kind of rubbed so many people the wrong way, wrongfully, I'll add, but it worked out just fine for LeBron. And then you see that people follow suit. So I think this Deshaun Watson situation could be one of those pivotal moments where the player empowerment kind of era really crosses over into football. Do you look at maybe uh, Le'Veon Bell and Melvin Gordon perhaps being trailblazers in NFL rights in a way as in, you know, their holdouts seem like they had some far reaching effects? Yeah, I think it's tough, though, because like I mentioned, it's about the results and the Le'Veon Bell. I personally am comfortable with the way it turned out, and it's not up for me, up to me necessarily. But so many people said that he lost money. But to me, it seemed like what he did was secure more money over a longer period of time. So that seemed like a win for Le'Veon Bell. Uh, to me, obviously, it would have been better had he played, not been injured, then signed the long term deal. But he ended up guaranteeing himself more money and getting a year of wear and tear off his body, which isn't a bad thing. And the Melvin Gordon one, I don't think there's any way you can look at that and consider that a success for Melvin Gordon. He didn't get the long-term contract extension and maybe he wasn't going to get it either way. So we all know how running backs are treated. So I'm not sure. It feels like the way that the results are interpreted mattered. And it didn't seem like Le'Veon Bell. And it's not just about how much money they get walk away with. It's about also how the public reacts to them. I don't think we appreciate how much the players care about that. I noticed that when I was negotiating the collective bargain agreement back during a lockout in, in 2010 and 2011 is all the players in the meetings are tough and they all are ready for war and they, they can withstand anything. And then that 11th hour hits and they're seeing tweets about how they're selfish and the news media is, is calling them greedy. and their friends and family may also be dependent on them and that changes everything. So the friends and friends and family is one thing that I, I certainly understand and respect. And I guess I understand and respect them wanting to be celebrated, but when you're an athlete, you're often criticized and celebrated and you don't really like the criticism. And when it's for something as big as 
impacting a, a team's fortune. I think that really weighs on the players on the players quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Now we know most NFL careers are short, but I think there's a false perception among fans that a lot of players walk away from the game in far better financial shape than they actually are. Can you talk about why that perception is false? Yeah, I mean, we the players we get to know are the players that are around for a long time. The guys who are around for a long time have money, and they've signed a couple deals. The guys that we don't get to know that are on teams for two years, one year, three years, four years, you don't get to know those names. They move on from team to team to team, and then they are unemployed. And even I was pretty responsible, unmarried, no kids for my first four years in the league. And I made pretty good money as a third round pick, but uh, that was the first time when I started thinking about applying to business school was in my fourth year when it was looking like maybe I wasn't going to sign a big deal because I was going to walk away at um, about 26 years old, 25, 26 years old with no useful experience to go on some other career. And granted, I would have had, I was responsible with my money. I would have had a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's not kind of life-changing money that you can live the rest of your life off of. And Mm -hmm. I I don't think, honestly, that it's it's commiserate value with the amount of time that you put in from the time that you're you're young to the time that you get there for what you're doing. So most of the players that go to the NFL, they are out at that point or earlier and and have uh, used most of their college time where other people are amassing a network that'll help them, amassing some skills, amassing some experience. They've used all of that time trying to get this big payday. And they've used all their NFL time trying to get this big payday. So their job is in coaching maybe is where you have some experience of value. It's really hard elsewhere. Now your role as NFL PA president, you mentioned you were in intense negotiations with owners. Tell me some of the most interesting things you learned about them. <laughs> um, I don't know if they're that interesting, but I, I might've been naive to not know it before. But the first thing I learned was they aren't that smart. And I don't mean that as like a negative, like I'm not saying that they're dumb, but I think prior to that experience and like I had a pretty normal upbringing, I wasn't like, we were like middle-class and and uh, everyone like worked in our neighborhood and all that stuff. And I thought about people who had amassed billions of dollars or people who were CEOs of big companies. I was like, oh, those people must be really smart. They must be super geniuses. Uh, they must all be like Bill Gates. And even Bill Gates, who is obviously very smart, had quite a few lucky breaks that he'll speak to um, himself directly. But in those meetings, I remember thinking like, oh, these guys are like of average intelligence. They, they've gotten lucky. They've worked hard. Some of them got the teams handed to them by their parents. And some of them bought the teams because they made some good decisions, but most of it, and not that they're lazy, plenty of them work hard. And it was in that, in those rooms that I first was like, Oh, no, I'm not like outmatched from a mental standpoint. And I I thought I would be, honestly, I I considered it. I consider for them to be at the top of their world. They must be as exceptional as we were to be at the top of our world. And they weren't they i think it's quite clear that professional football players are in the top uh percentile of athletes in the world and in the country but i don't think that they the business people were in the top of like intellect so that was a surprise for me Mm, interesting now 
there's many players in the NFL, you know, who are paid well, obviously, as you mentioned, because they have elite talent, or actually all of them are. But how do you look at the balance of power between owners and players now? I mean, it's, I've written and talked about it it's a, a bunch. It's, it is uh, it's incredible power asymmetry in the owner's favor for a couple of reasons, a couple of um, structural reasons that you can't really do much about. And one of them is they own the teams. So they will own their careers, so to speak, their earning period for the teams are into perpetuity. And so the idea of missing out on a full season in order to get one percentage point and there are fewer of them also. So one percentage point split up amongst 32 owners may mean, I'm not sure the numbers off the top of my head, but let's say it means a million dollars per franchise in an organization or in um, a league that's growing. So next year it'll be 2 million, a year after that it'll be 4 million. So compounding until you die and then you hand it to your kids. So then you're like, all right, if that's my equation, then okay, I can afford to sit out an entire season because what this is gonna mean for me is hundreds of million, if not billions of dollars for me and my family. The equation is different for players because your career on average is gonna be three years or two years, or even if it's 10 or 15 years, you're gonna give up one year of your career. You can't get that year back. And then you take into account that the 1% is the same amount of money that would be going to the owner split up amongst 32 of them. For you, it's going to the players split up amongst uh, 1,200 of them. And then what ends up happening is most of the gains go to the big name star players because they have the negotiating leverage. So even if you're a guy who has a four-year career and you sit out for one year in order to add one percentage point to the pot, the guy who's going to get that money is the quarterback. You're not going to be like, oh, but I run down on special teams so fast. <laughs> Let me get this money. So when you actually think about it like that, it's really like purely logically, there's no reason. If, if I could hand my cornerback position over to my son, then I'd be like, all right, well, bleep it. <laughs> right. I'll, right. I'll ride this out because it's going to be in my family forever. Or even if I knew that my career was going to be 40 years. And that's like we see that in other unions like the auto workers union or steel workers union uh, or healthcare teachers unions. You understand that you're going to be doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. So I'm sorry, there's a long winded answer, but yeah. uh, I think that points out how how drastic the power asymmetry is. And then you put on top of it, these guys are incredibly powerful and respected and influential and none of the news networks want to bother them because they all want to be able to air their games. So like that influences all the decisions that are being made and the pressure that we talked about earlier, how the players don't like or react well to fans coming down on them. Well, that's what happens when, when no one really knows the owner's names, first of all, and all of the, the media channels are afraid of the owners or want to at least maintain a good relationship with them. The coverage reflects that. Now, we saw the Milwaukee Bucks flex their muscle, you know, not refuse to play a game after Jacob Blake was shot. Could you see... NFL players wielding that much power if we have a situation like that moving forward. Why or why not? I could see them doing that. I, I mean, it's unlikely. The tough thing, I think, or the toughest thing is what would prompt it and what would you be pushing for? Because that's what it feels like. It feels like when you 
are going to like boycott or go on strike or something like whatever you would consider this a wildcat strike. It seems like what you would be doing is more than just saying we're making a demonstration is we're making a demand and you don't get football until we get X. And that would be interesting to have players figure out that. And it is a a predominantly black league, but it's not 100% black. And I I would imagine that, not I would imagine, I know it's it's probably a little bit more right-leaning a sport uh, politically football than basketball. So it's unlikely, but I could see it happening if something happens just before a game or just before the weekend, something major happens and they all come together and like, what are are we going to do? We need to do something. Now, players in the past, like the late John Mackey, first president of Players Union, sacrificed a lot so that players of this era could make the money that they do. How much should today's players be willing to sacrifice for the future? That is a tough question. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that because I don't know how to how to quantify how much. Like, I, I think they certainly should be willing to sacrifice, I think. That that is the power of the union because we laid out right there earlier how the benefits may not fall on you and probably won't like fall on you. And I've had many conversations with players that endured strikes and I never had to do that, but I made money that they never were able to make. So it's a tough thing to do to both tell them to sacrifice, but then we went over the economics of the situation and some of them can't afford to make that sacrifice, or most of them aren't gonna get that money. They're gonna be out of the league. So to me, it, it feels like the the sacrifice should come from the management side and the ownership side of this equation. But the problem is the players have to sacrifice them in order to force them to to make that sacrifice. You're going to have to give up something because they're not going to do it out of the kindness of their heart or out of appreciation or respect. Verizon just turned on 5G across the country. The 5G America's been waiting for. Learn more at verizon.com slash 5G. My next guest is Washington football team president Jason Wright, who became the first black NFL team president in league history when he was hired in August. An undrafted running back from Northwestern, Wright wasn't a star player during his NFL career that lasted from 2004 through 2011. But teammates quickly recognized his outstanding leadership qualities. He was the Arizona Cardinals player representative during his final two NFL seasons. Following his career, he earned an MBA from the University of Chicago and distinguished himself as a top executive at McKenzie & Company, a global management and consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. Even though he's the youngest team president in the NFL, Wright has seen the NFL from all angles. He's been a player, he's fought for players, and now he's on the management side trying to turn around a storied franchise that was the last in the NFL to integrate and dealt with other off-the-field issues even in recent years. You were the Arizona Cardinals player rep, Jason, during the 2011 lockout, so... Tell me what that experience was like and what motivated you at that time to be an advocate for players' rights as a player. Yeah, um, well, I, I'll tell you this. It was, it's one of the biggest honors of my life to be voted by my teammates. To represent them, 
uh, not just, um, you know, in some nominal way, but on the stuff that really mattered to them. Like this, this is their families, their finances, like, you know, their future. And so for your guys to trust you with that, like that, that's the the ultimate affirmation, uh, probably the best affirmation I've ever felt. And so, you know, I I carried that mindset into that. I took it very seriously because I felt like I was carrying the burden of all these guys with me, their very livelihoods in their future, not just for this generation of players, but another uh, set of them. And so, you know, it was very meaningful to me. But when I got in it, I realized, man, while I have some gifts and strengths in this, you know, I can communicate well and I care and, you know, I can understand the concepts a little bit. You know, I was ill-equipped to really lead in the way that I wanted to because I didn't understand business. I didn't understand how capital flowed. I didn't understand how money was made. I didn't understand profit and loss. And some of the folks that were most effective, if I think back, the Jeff Saturdays, those folks who really got our collective bargaining agreement done in that cycle, they understood that stuff. And so for me, as a player, as a person of color, because uh, I realized that, you know, part of the deficit there was that black folks don't tend to get the same sort of intellectual capital that others get when it comes to understanding finances and business. It really affirmed my need to go and get those skills and get that knowledge. And so I wanted to go to business school when I was done playing ball. And that's how I got into business and landed where I am today. So I'm grateful for it. It's a good inflection point for me. Now, I understand your grandfather was a school teacher in Texas back in the 40s, but lost his job for associating with the NAACP. Right. You also had another relative seriously involved in a voting rights case in Tuskegee in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, how has that family background or how did it shape your views, do you think, on activism? Yeah, I think for me, the benefit of coming from a family of civil rights activists or folks that were very race conscious and took it as part of our identity as a family um, was that I always saw myself in the context of a bigger history. And when you see yourself in the context of a bigger history, it, it gives you the opportunity to have a little bit of a deeper sense of purpose, to maybe be more circumspect about opportunities that present themselves. You know, if I think about where my folks have come from and what they labored through, like I'm willing to take on a little pain, a little discomfort. I'm willing to compromise a little bit in order to get to a place of influence where I can advocate for other marginalized populations, not just black folks, but women, LGBTQ plus professionals, other folks, like all of those things, um, you know, are just things I have always thought about because of the way that um, my my family raised me and the lineage I come from. So um, I think it just helps in the starting point of how I approach problems. Um, I think otherwise it just, it tells me to like sort of, Stop whining anytime I think it's hard. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because my grandfather had to go from being a school teacher to a farmer in an instant just to help his family survive. You know, and then a militia, a racial militia, uh, tried to take that farm from them by force. Is that so right? They had to, yeah. Oh they had to get out the guns and have a Hatfield and McCoy type shootout just to <laughs> keep their land. Oh my you know, and so, you know, I sit here and be like, oh, man, this job is hard. It's so hard. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> like, like, there's a, there's another level that people right. that I have lived on this earth with walk through that we're not mm-hmm. that far removed from. I can suck it up. Why do you think that it took this long 
for a black person to become a team president in a league where almost 70 percent of players are black? Yeah, um, I think there's a there's a few answers to that. You know, my my glib one would be, you know, why are there only four Fortune 100 black CEOs? <laughs> it's, just, it's the same. It's the problem is the same. Mm-hmm. The problem is the same. Um, while I believe that talent is equally distributed across all races and backgrounds and people of all types, opportunity is clearly not. Opportunity is clearly not, unless you don't believe talent is equally distributed across all folks of all types. But I think we all do. I think we would all say that it is. So therefore, uh, opportunity is not equitable across groups. Now, I think specifically the challenge for the league, and I was very fortunate in this, is that in for any for any professional, especially professional of color, role modeling is important. Images are important. And for me, I was really fortunate that, um, you know, I had a there was a black senior vice president with the Atlanta Falcons when I was there. Uh, I had a black head coach in Cleveland, Romeo Cornell, had a black general manager in Arizona, Rod Graves. And so for me, even at a subconscious level, the idea that black folks could lead outside of the hash marks. And that there was a place for them in leading a franchise or in leading an organization of this type um, beyond what I was doing with my physical labor and talent on the field was already in my head. And that opens you up to even just exploring those opportunities and believing you belong. And that is an undervalued aspect of anyone's career path. And so I think that's one aspect. Um, I think the NFL has taken on the other aspect head on, and that's that. Um, opportunities are are not just created out of goodwill. They're created when you try to align incentives and they're doing some really creative things. You know, the Rooney rule is one thing and people crap on the Rooney rule all day. But I'll tell you what, if corporate America used the Rooney rule, we'd all be in better shape. Right. We'd all be in better shape. Corporate America is even close to doing the Rooney rule, you know? Mm. So, you know, I got to give the league credit and some of the other things they're trying to do. They've tied incentives for the organizations to produce minority talent. If a black or brown coach from your team is taken by another team, you get more draft picks like these. That's very controversial. I know some people don't like it, but I love what the NFL is trying to do to be experimental around incentives, hard incentives that actually just get us to the right place that we should have been in all along. Um, And of course, do we want to move faster and do more? Yes. But I think we're on the right path. Now, I'm told you talk to. Washington owner Dan Snyder and his wife, Tanya, for more than 30 hours before you decided to accept this job as team yeah. president. Yes. What, what did you hear that convinced you that this was a job for you? Yeah, I heard two things that were really important. Um, one was I heard an honest, open, transparent, um, and vulnerable expression of their hearts. You know, it's not often in an interview process where you hear people say, I wish we would have done this or this differently. Here are the mistakes we made. Here's how we grieve where this and this and this had been. That sort of open and transparent conversation, people willing to put their hearts out there like that, that doesn't happen often. It certainly don't happen with people of power and wealth like that, at least in my experience, very often. So that immediately gave me the sense that these are folks that I can be candid with open with, honest with, and that they were really committed to change. You don't share that stuff unless you're really committed. 
The second thing was them really expressing and giving me the demonstrated examples of that commitment to change. When you hire a coach like Ron Rivera, you're committed to change. But he doesn't play. He doesn't play games. He's a man of integrity, expects to do his job professionally, expects you to trust him. Um, and to hire someone like that and to give him the ability to do what he needed to do spoke volumes to me. Hiring the first woman lead of media and broadcasting in the environment in which the team was operating at that time is a bold and important signal that's not insubstantial. And their commitment to put the resources and things in place that were needed to do not only what we needed to do on organizational health and culture, but to make our business one that drives equity in how it's done. You know, we talked about how we wanted to approach a, a new, a potential new venue in, uh, in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And to do that with equity principles built in, talking about hundreds of millions of dollars going towards Black-owned, Brown-owned, women-owned, and veteran-owned businesses. And a commitment to that from them right on the face of things is, you know, is really powerful. Um, and so there's some shared values and some openness that made me feel like this is something we could do together. Now, there's been so much talk about the, the franchise and name change. Uh, why do you think the name change of the Washington franchise is significant? The, the name change is significant on multiple levels. Number one, it represents our ownership's you know, bold decision to say, despite a rich and important history. And this name is meaningful in a positive way to many folks. Even though that's the case, if we're going to have an organization that has the values I want us to have and to be esteemed in the marketplace that I want it to be, I'm going to have to make this move now. And I think it's a burden they really took on. It's not easy to do. It's not an easy decision to make, irrespective of how you or I feel about the connotation of that name and how it has negatively impacted communities and things like that. Still a hard decision to make. And so I think what it did more than anything was signal that across the entire franchise, business, operations, football side, things are going in a different direction. Right. And it was a promise that things would shift for the positive and an ask for the fan base and others for trust that it could get to a good spot. Um, and I think what has materialized you know, since then, while it's still a sore spot and many folks who have such memories associated with the old name, there is a hope and an optimism, mainly because of what Coach has been able to do on the field, that that move is indicative of better things coming. And then it's on me and those of us leading the rebrand process to make sure we don't lose the great aspects of that history under that old name and old moniker. And we pull those forward into the new identity. It's a failure if we feel like an expansion team <laughs> on the other side of this. So the task is on me, heavy task on me and my team's shoulders to ensure we do that with the fan base. Now, your hiring obviously was met with a lot of, you know, kudos and, you know, it was historic. I'm sure though you've probably heard a couple of people either say out loud or get the view that, well, they just hired this 30-year-old black man as a PR move. Yeah, of course. What, what is your response to that trend of thought? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing they said when I was elected. You know, people said when I was elected partner at a consulting firm. It's the same thing people said when I got into a top five business school. We, we used to hearing this. I don't really pay it to minds, honestly. And, and, you know, there's also the refrain of like, well, are you qualified? All of that stuff. And, you know, you know, I had some snippy responses to that. But honestly, at the end of the day, unfortunately, that's 
the extra burden that you carry as a black professional, no matter where you are. And, let, and don't let you be a black woman. You carry that doubly, right? You carry that doubly. And it, it is what it is. One day that won't be something that we have to fight through and carry. But honestly, the bigger burden, the bigger pain is in that person who thinks that way, not on me. What do you see as your vision? Obviously, I know you guys want to win Super Bowl every year. But what is your vision for what do you want to accomplish as Washington's team president? You know, for me, I want us to become you know, a workplace that is rec- widely recognized as one of the best, best places to work in sports. A healthy organizational culture, a diverse leadership team that people are flocking to. And as a result, are producing, you know, really innovative approaches across our business, our core business of football itself, but the others that will build over time. That, to me, will be the marker of success. And I think we've seen some early wins there. You know, like I said, we've got this new diverse leadership team and new capabilities we brought in and even winning awards on our social media team and in our content studio, getting really good recognition for how they're taking a different tone and approach to media. Very proud of that. You know, we our operations team delivered best in the league on COVID, you know, um, And so these are things that our new leaders and a refreshed sense of energy in the organization are accomplishing. And I think they're the first fruits of what we'll be able to do. But, you know, I'm going to measure myself based on how well we perform as a business, as I should, I think. Do you believe that you being the first black team president will open up the doors for diversity in more front offices and executive levels around the league? I would think so. I mean, time will tell. And the best thing I can do is do a good job. It <laughs> could do a good job in this role. So nobody gets on the kick of, well, last time we brought a brother in for a role like this. Right. So the best thing I can do is, um, you know, bring the best of myself, assemble the best team, be innovative, be agile, be rigorous, just do a damn good job. Right. And, and let everything else uh, sort of sort itself out. But, you know, the, the struggle with, you know, the, the numbers game is that there are only 32 teams in the NFL. It's a law of small numbers thing. So it's really hard to measure progress, you know, on such a small scale because, you know, one or two changes tip the scales in one direction or the other in a big way. Um, I think what we can better focus on is if we think about the talent pipeline across all levels and are we growing the pie of even the candidates that are being considered? Right. right. When it used to be like, all right, Rooney Rules, go find the one and interview the one. Right. Now, when we get to a space where we're saying, well, there are seven really qualified candidates, it's going to be easy. Uh, you know, it's easy for we now are looking specifically for black talent and we're cultivating it over years. Like, yeah, it's easy to interview through the Rooney Rule because there's seven people that would be amazing head coaches or there's. Six guys that would be fantastic general managers or three guys that would be and gals that would be fantastic team presidents. You know, um, I think that is where we can measure a bit better and then continue to hold ourselves accountable for how much of that pipeline converts into the head roles. But, you know, I'm encouraged by the overall progress. Um, And I like, as I said earlier, I like some of the things that the league and others are doing to try to get creative and incentivize you know, decisions. And I would say better decisions because frankly, if talent is equally distributed and we don't see equivalent representation, it literally means we don't have the best talent in these roles. 
And so we will make better decisions if we are seeing more diverse talent and specifically with regard to the lead black talent in leadership roles. So at a time when it seems like there's so many people, I don't know, discouraged by what they're seeing in the country, in the workplace, you sound like you're pretty optimistic about the future. Am I correct in saying that? I choose to be. <laughs> I choose to be. What other choice is there? Um, I think I think one of the one of the positive aspects of um, being the son of civil rights activists and grandson of civil rights activists is that I'm cynic on race issues by nature because I know the roots of society. I know how these things are deeply systemic. And actually, it helps me to be more optimistic, because if I see our racial history in a proper context and I know the demons this nation has struggled with historically and how they're still present in so many of our systems, when I see a breakthrough, even a small one, I get really damn excited because I know how hard it is to see a breakthrough for talent of color or for a business of color or whatever it is. Um, and, And so when I see these positive signs, I get very optimistic because I think they are bigger markers of success than we give them credit for. Because I have a deep and fairly cynical view of the racial history of our country. So because I esteem that so big, I esteem small victories so well. Verizon just turned on 5G across the country. The 5G America has been waiting for. Learn more at Verizon.com 5G. My final guest is Richard Lapchick, who has spent his entire adult life fighting against racism. In 1988, Lapchick began the Racial and Gender Report Card, a yearly analysis which examines the racial and gender makeup of players, coaches, and staff in the NFL and other American sports organizations. Lapchick has been assaulted and threatened for fighting against racism, but he has never quit. In 2020, He believes more NFL players reached the same conclusion he reached years ago, that fighting racism isn't optional, but an obligation. Can you talk about your introduction to racism as a five-year-old and how a decision your father made as head coach of the Knicks played a part in that? Well, Cliff, literally my earliest memory as a five-year-old was looking outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York, where I was raised. And seeing my father's image swing, swinging from a tree with people under the tree picketing. And for several years after that, I'd pick up the extension phone in the house, my dad not knowing that I was listening. And it was racial epithet after racial epithet being hurled at him. As a five, six, and seven-year-old kid, I didn't know what any of it meant, except I knew a lot of people hated my best friend. And later, I would, of course, find out that as the coach of the Knicks in 1950, he signed the first Black player in the history of the NBA. Matt Sweetwater Clifton a week before the Celtics and the Nationals drafted Earl Lloyd and Chuck Cooper, and they became the first three black players in October of 1950, a league that's now 80 percent black. But in 1950, there were a lot of people uh, who weren't ready for that. Right. And also you had another incident, you've had many, where you were assaulted outside your office by hooded men. Well, I had, as a teenager, wanted to be a ball player. My dad was a double inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was the first great big man in the game. Everybody assumed I would follow in his footsteps. I was pretty tall in the eighth grade. I was one of the tallest players in New York City and was 
heavily recruited by high schools there. I chose not to go to a school called Power Memorial, uh, even though it was the top basketball program in the country because I wanted a little more of an academic emphasis elsewhere. But I became friends with the coach and he invited me to his basketball camp the next summer. This is 1961, Cliff. High school coaches didn't have basketball camps then. Now everybody has them <laughs> right. as revenue generators. But in 1961, <laughs> right. this was different. So there were five of his white players there from Power Memorial and a black player. And one of the white players was just dropping the N-word on the black player for the first three days. And I finally challenged him, Cliff. And at, at that point, the kid knocked me out cold. Uh, that kid has been a D1 basketball coach for the last 35 years. And the black guy was named Lou Alcindor at the time. And Kareem and I became lifelong friends to the point that when his statue was unveiled at the Staples Center, he asked me to speak at it. When he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama at the end of his administration, he invited me and Henry Louis Gates to be his two guests at the White House. And he flew all the way to Orlando to be with me when I was scheduled to have surgery a number of years ago. But as a 15-year-old boy, Cliff, a white boy from a largely white community, I suddenly had a young urban African-American lens to see what racism was doing in his community and other communities of color. It was really at that point that I decided I was going to be involved in civil rights for the rest of my life. I didn't know what that meant at the time or what it would look like, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I got a PhD in international race relations. It was the first one in the country at the time. And uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on how South Africa used sport as part of its foreign policy and the international response and compared with how the Nazis had done that in the 1930s. It became published as a book. I started speaking about apartheid, founded the Sports Boycott of South Africa in 1974 in America. It was a big movement in Europe and New Zealand, Britain, and Australia, which were the competitive allies in sport with South Africa. Uh, but they were now boycotting South Africa. So I knew they were going to come to the United States. 1978 was the first South African team coming. It was a Davis Cup team playing in Nashville, Tennessee. And I went down there as the head of the coalition to try to get the matches canceled. The African governments, with which I was working closely in the anti-apartheid struggle, had asked me to announce that they would boycott the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles if this team was allowed to come in 1978. So I announced that at Vanderbilt before I spoke to the student body and I did it in a press conference format. And all three networks were there because of the implications for the Olympics and Dick Schapp who was then a correspondent for NBC Nightly News, came up to me after the press conference, but before I spoke to the student body, and he said the financial backers of the Davis Cup had pulled out. It looked like the matches were going to be canceled. I announced that to the crowd. They went crazy. And when I flew home to Virginia that night, I thought maybe for the first time in my life, I had really done something worthwhile. Next night, I was working late in my college office to get in a long, rounded way to your original question. And the office was in the school's library. The library closed at 10.30. There was a knock on the door at 10.45. I assumed it was the campus security. So I didn't hesitate to open the door, but it was two men wearing stocking masks who proceeded to cause liver damage, kidney damage, a hernia, concussion, and carved the N-word in my stomach with a pair of office scissors. I knew laying in the hospital that night, Cliff, that if people had gone to the length they did to try to stop my dad 28 years before and to the length they did to try to stop me that night, that they must have thought, we were having an impact on racism and fighting against racism using the sports platform that they didn't want to continue. So I decided in that hospital bed that night that I was going to spend the rest of my life using the sports platform to address social justice issues, obviously emphasizing race, but other social justice issues as well. And that's essentially what I've done since 1978. 
during your years doing this with the NFL, have you seen black players treated significantly differently than white players? I'd just like you to talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the big difference here and now is athlete activism, whereas when athletes were when Colin Kaepernick took the action that he did in 2016, I think most of the public probably opposed it. Players didn't exactly know what to do when the next season was about to start. It was no certainty at all that players were going to line, line up and take a knee until Donald Trump went on the air the, the, literally the night before the season, the 2017 started and talked to said what he said about owners should fire these people, and he didn't paint it so politely. Right. Um, that brought Roger Goodell even to say players can demonstrate, and of course they did. And then uh, the ultimate the ultimate a- athlete activism act of this moment, I think, was when the Milwaukee Bucks decided that after the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that they weren't going to play in a playoff game, that they were favored to win the entire NBA playoffs. And the league and the Players Association stood up with them right after that. So now we see players, teams, leagues acting in, and players associations acting in unison. It's a different era. So I think it's an important era. I think we're going to see it at the college level with student athletes speaking out about how bad. I mean, we talk about hiring practices needing adjustments in the NFL and, and other sports. College sport is, is the worst of all. So student athletes are going to realize that they have power. I think they realized it last year, but once they direct it, once, once pro athletes directed internally at their organization, we're going to see even more changes. Do you think today's athletes have more power to have impact than maybe even back in the day when Jim Brown and John Mackey were doing what they were doing? Do you think today's athletes, because of social media and other factors, may have even more power if they continue to speak out than those guys did in the past? Well, they have more power because the public is supporting athlete activism. You know, a Nielsen study uh, that came out a couple of months ago said that 77 percent of the American public supports athlete activism, supports the teams uh, backing the athletes and even ask their the people that they buy product from uh, to be, have a social conscience and do things that are uh, more progressive. This is, is a different public, of course. You know, you have to counter that with the fact that in this election, which, thank God, Trump was defeated, but 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. How? What are, what are their attitudes? We saw some example of it. I don't think these are representative of 70 million people, obviously, but what we saw in Washington put us on high alert that we have to stay vigilant always. You have conversations with Commissioner Goodell and have had many. I'm sure you'll continue to moving forward. What advice would you give him now for the NFL moving forward regarding diversity? I would advise him, keep listening to the players, hear their voices, uh, understand that they are, which I think he does now, multidimensional human beings. And I think this is one of the things about athlete activism that is, has finally captured the spirit of, of players is, you know, they used to be asked, do you think you'll be recovered from this injury and be able to play on Sunday? I think the team will win the conference championship. Will we play in the Super Bowl? Now they're being asked about, uh, wealth in America and the disparities in educational systems and the disparities in healthcare systems and the in the COVID crisis, you know, the disproportionate impact on black and brown communities uh, from the plague in this country at the moment. It feels good to be treated as a multidimensional human being. And I think Roger Goodell and the league office is now doing that. And we're going to see more, hopefully, of more of a partnership in the future. Uh, and I would encourage him to, to ex- even expand that further. Deshaun Watson in Texas 
who Corley is unhappy about not being included in the process of hiring general manager. Do you think we're going to see more players of his caliber push to be involved in those conversations? I think players are going to see their, have seen what their power is, know that they can have an impact and will continue to use it in important circumstances uh, like is happening right now as the hiring cycle is now opening up in the NFL. And some people are calling this era the black quarterback with Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Lamar, et cetera. How important is that for the NFL? Well, of course, it's important because there was such a history of black players not being able to be quarterbacks because of stereotypes and racism. Um, you know, this is one obstacle that's been overcome, but the, the black quarterback is, is, is the face of the team uh, in the public's view. And that to have a black face on uh, representing the team, I think, is, is critically important to young kids growing up to see what leadership really means. Uh, to see how they can not only play a role on a field, uh, but in decisions that are affecting their everyday lives. Black quarterbacks will be the focus of the next episode of Black in the NFL. When I'll speak with Lamar Jackson of the Ravens and other black NFL quarterbacks who are changing the game. Here's a short preview of what Lamar had to say. Are we past the point of with what you and Mahomes doing, Deshaun, Russell Wilson, the negative stereotypes of black quarterbacks, or do you think there's still some of that going on? Oh, there's going to still be some of that going on, you know, but it's it, it dying down a lot, you know, because um, each and every Sunday or whenever um, any one of us play, you know, we we showing up and we, we put on the show, you know, we, we're not just out there just playing football and just doing anything. We out there winning games and, I feel putting our team in best situations, you know. So um, I guess we we change the narrative um, as we go on, just like the, the guys before us did. I really hope you have been enjoying this podcast. I want to ask you again to please subscribe if you haven't already, leave a rating and review, and spread the word to your friends and family. A lot of the topics we've talked about recently from diversity hiring and off-the-field matters, are in the news right now. This is important stuff, and I hope you'll give it a listen and share with others. Thank you. Black in the NFL is powered by Blue Wire. The show is produced and edited by Noah Eberhardt and executive produced by Michelle Andres, Ryan Mink, John Yales, and Peter Moses. Tune into the Ravens Podcast Network for two other podcasts, The Lounge, hosted by Garrett Downing and Ryan Mink, and What Happened to That Guy, hosted by John Eisenberg. Thanks to all my guests, and join us for the next episode of Black in the NFL. Until then, be blessed, and thanks for listening.